check. On this episode, we talk to a pharmacist that works in public health. We discuss her state's response to the pandemic, and we walk through what it's going to be like trying to distribute this vaccine uh, once one gets approved. Hope you enjoy. everyone welcome to another episode of rx radio i'm your host richard waith and we have a part two version of a previous episode that i'm super excited to jump into today uh we are bringing back dr tracy dabs tracy how's it going it's going good how are you doing today i'm doing well uh for those that may uh, have listened uh last year i believe it was um episode 66 where we the title was emergency preparedness pharmacist uh, we had a great conversation about um, like what the state does and what pharmacists do to help prepare for emergencies. And, you know, obviously we had no idea what was going to happen in 2020 when we had that conversation. But I'm excited to jump into some of like hear about stories about what the response has been um, in your state and, um, you know, kind of the things that you've dealt with. But before we jump into that, for those that may not have listened to that episode, can you first tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am a pharmacist for the Georgia Department of Public Health, and I work under the section of emergency preparedness and response. So I'm not in a health department setting, like I'm not out in the field, I'm not in, and I serve as a subject matter expert for emergency preparedness related to a pharmacist. So what is the, uh, you know, if people really want to dive into the things that she does day to day, definitely go check out that episode. But maybe can you also give us a little bit of a uh, brief glimpse into what day to day is like for you? Yeah, sure. So uh, before COVID, actually in January, um, I was helping the team. We were putting together an exercise regarding uh, a pandemic with flu. Um, So that prepared us for what happened in March. So I served as an expert regarding antivirals, uh, flu vaccine, ways that we would get those out into a public health setting. Uh, So that was one of the exercises I was involved with. Um, My day-to-day routine is kind of different. I help manage a program for the state that deals with chemical terrorism, and it's medications that are basically little stockpiles, little caches all all around in the state. And this is for any state, by the way. Um, But in Georgia, I help manage that program. So if we ever have a organophosphate-related incident, whether it's a terrorist attack or um, if it deals with pesticides, uh, because we have a lot of farming, especially in South Georgia, we would be able to use those medications to treat uh, first responders or any other type of patients. And I'm trying to think of what other, what other fun things I do. Um, because we don't have to um, deal with chemical terrorism on a day-to-day basis, thank God. Um, I also assist the state with developing education for our nurses. So I, I work on that as well, which I really enjoy. And I work as a pharmacist for the nursing protocols. So I go over all the medications when um, in our, I'll have to kind of explain this a little bit. So in our health departments in Georgia, our nurses work off protocols. So we'll have a protocol with a physician in their health district. And 
it basically states, oh, if a person presents with this type of condition, then you treat with this medication. So we we as pharmacists go over those protocols to make sure that the treatments match up with the guidelines and is appropriate treatment um, for those particular patients. Does, does that make sense? The way yeah, I explain that? Definitely. Okay. Okay, good. And yeah, I, I also serve as a liaison between emergency preparedness and the office of pharmacy. So if we ever need to get clarification regarding um, mass dispensing of a medication such as doxycycline or ciprofloxacin for an anthrax attack, we make sure that the Office of Pharmacy is aware of the plans we're making and make sure that they match up with the rules and regulations of our state in regards to dispensing regulations. What Can you give us some insight into the Office of Pharmacy? Because I'm just not sure if that is something yeah. unique to Georgia or is that something that most states have? It just might be called something different. Um, you know, that, that is that is a good question. Some states don't do not have an Office of Pharmacy in their public health, so thank you for that. So um, the Office of Pharmacy in public health, we have... Um, we have 18 health care, sorry, we have 18 health districts in our state, and it's based on population. So some of those districts will have a pharmacy in those health districts. Not all of them do. Some of them contract out, but some actually have their own pharmacy within that health district. So the Office of Pharmacy is who they report to regarding medications in the health department, and a lot of it deals with 340B, which is the special pricing program you can get. And since we are a, uh, since public health is a nonprofit, we get access to special pricing. So there's a lot of reporting. There's a lot of inventory tracking in regards to that. So the Office of Pharmacy makes sure that those pharmacists are doing what they need to do to make sure they're providing those medications um, in regulation for 340B. Gotcha. Cool. Now, I imagine because of COVID, now, you know, you told me about your day-to-day and, and the, your primary focus is pre-COVID. I would imagine a lot of the resources had to get diverted to um, the pandemic response. So uh, yeah. maybe tell us yeah. a little bit about that and then what kind of in a broader spec, um, spectrum, like what has the response been like? Yeah, sure. So we activated in our state on March the 8th. And we set up a call center for people to call in to have questions. And I, I was one of the first people to staff that call center. There were, there were two of us. It was me and someone else. And then it turned into 30. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, so we were fielding calls because initially you could only get tested in the health department, right? That's the only place where you could go get COVID testing. So we were referring people to where they could go get tested because it was very limited. Um, there was a lot, of, um, a lot of scared people that had questions. Um, so we we fielded a lot of those questions. Our uh, warehouse that I've been working out of since March, I think it was March 20th, it activated on March 13th. Um, I'm pretty positive I got COVID around March 13th, so I had to work from home. From oh, wow. You get tested, you just had <laughs> symptoms? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, nice. I was sick for two. I was sick for two weeks. Um not 100% sure about that because I couldn't get access to testing, but um, it was awful. But I was um, I was still taking public transportation to the call center, and I got really sick and just stayed at home. Um, and it, it was about 10 days, and I started feeling better. And I went to go work at our warehouse that activated on, on March 13th. And our warehouse is where – which is really interesting. I had talked to you on the last episode about the strategic national stockpile. That was activated um, – this year nationally. 
So mm-hmm. I, I if, if someone wants more information on that, they can go back and listen to it. But the strategic national stockpile, some, some people did see it in the news. It's a federally run program that has medications, uh, PPE, ventilators, things like that. So we had ventilators sent to the warehouse. We had N95 sent to the warehouse. We had gloves sent to the warehouse. So like everything was centralized and sent to our warehouse that we use for planning purposes for um, an anthrax attack. So we basically activated our anthrax attack and he used it for COVID in regards to how we receive stuff from the strategic national stockpile. The state was also purchasing supplies, our emergency management agency. Um, so all the supplies went to that warehouse as well. So everything was channeled through there. Any um, testing supplies that the federal government sent that were, were sent from the federal side to the state went to that warehouse. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, I've been there since March. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned March 8th, uh, which I was actually curious and I just double checked real quick. I feel like there was such a pivotal point where in, in the pandemic response, when the NBA canceled their season. That to me was like a really yeah. big marker. And it was actually March 11th that that occurred. Yeah. So it's interesting yeah. that, you know, you guys were a little bit ahead of the, the game technically, <laughs> if, if we're marking mm-hmm. that as like a real turning point and, and setting that up on the eighth, but. Well, um, it's, it's, it's super funny, Richard. So we were planning. Um, so the CDC requires you to test plans every five years. And we were planning our mass, like anthrax dispensing um, operation, like our, 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 you know, our exercise for the CDC was this year. So we were planning for that in February and getting ready for that. And we had to shut it down because we were advised not to practice it because of COVID because they didn't want people lined up and getting bottles. Oh, wow. That's crazy. (laughs) So, um, so I was working on that in February when, um, when it initially, like when all this stuff was starting to come in and, um, yeah, we only had like two cases at that time and then it just exploded. It was insane. Mm-hmm. Now, what was your sentiment around that time? Because I remember, you know, I think I might have had a tweet in January that I, I was kind of watching what was going on over in China. And um, I tweeted about it. Obviously, it got zero, you know, traction in general, which <laughs> I think in in as a populist, they didn't listen, Richard. yeah, no one was paying attention. Right. And I'm not to say like, I like rang alarms. I just said, Hey, this is kind of interesting what's going on. I, I also did not know how crazy it would have been, but at you <laughs> being in public health and, um, and maybe some of your peers, how soon were you guys, uh, you know, um, kind of, how soon were you all kind of thinking about, well, you know, are we going to have to start activating some serious stuff here? Uh, when did that kind of set in, uh, just from a personal perspective, I, I'm sure like the national response and the state response was, was might be different from that, but from a personal mm-hmm. perspective, what was like, what, what was like your early rememberings of how crazy this might be or, or how concerned we should be? Well, early on, like I remember talking with people in February, especially when we were planning for this mass dispensing exercise, or I shouldn't say dis- dispensing, we're calling it distribution now. Um, cause dispensing is a technical pharmacist term. Um, so, um, so when we were planning this mass distribution exercise, I remember talking to people, um, we just didn't have enough information at that time. And the information we had was very limited. So the data we were getting in February was, oh, this is like similar to, um, flu, um, regarding fatality rate. And, um, the whole like the contact and how many people 
you know, you can actually expose to it or, in, or when they were in contact was somewhat significant. But, um, yeah, I mean, I honestly was wrong. I, but in, in, in hindsight, we just didn't have enough data at the time. So, um, yeah, and I mean, we still don't have a lot of data now, to be honest with you. This is, a, this is just a novel virus that we don't have a lot of information about. I mean, we obviously have more now than we did in February. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I honestly was not as concerned as I should have been in February, but that was based on the current data that we had at that time. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Now, I remember on our last episode, we had talked about the national stockpile. And I think we, we had joked about how like running out of gloves, you know, like you can't run out of gloves, you know, during, you know, an anthrax (laughs) attack. And I just, you know, we laughed like, ha ha ha. So funny. And like, it's just crazy how, you know, something became serious where, you know, I mean, I I wanted to hear a little bit about what might've happened, but, um, did we act, did your state actually run out of gloves? Um, what, what issues happened with, with PBE? Absolutely. Um, so we, we, there was a lot of places that were running extremely low on gloves. Uh, we, we set up a process where entities could request PPE through our state. Um, I'll send you a link. I have a little video that they did at the warehouse at well, as well that explained the whole entire process. Uh, but we were allocating to every single health facility in our state that met qualifications. So hospitals, uh, doctor's offices that weren't shut down. Uh, and you basically filled out a link requesting PPE and letting us know if you were going to run out of supplies within 72 hours. Uh, we were extremely low on gloves, ex- extremely low on gloves. Um, I had to have a few talk with some nursing homes um, to, to get their burn rate down because they were just going through gloves way too fast. Like um, identifying in, uh, individuals who should not be wearing gloves. Like for example, it was, I remember talking to a nursing home and the person that was doing their uh, janitor services that had no contact with patients that was just like cleaning in a certain area that was not around um, COVID-19 patients. I was like, he does, there's nobody in his area that has COVID. Right. And they're like, Oh no, it's, it's different area. I'm like, okay, well he can use his gloves. Like he would normally use to clean like those reusable gloves like like industrial gloves mm-hmm. i was like just have him wear those he can decon them when he's done with his shift every day and hang them up and they were like oh that makes a lot more sense because he's going through a box of gloves a day <laughs> i was just like yeah. oh my gosh <laughs> so i'm um, just trying to um to like get your burn rate down um mitigate some risk and um just have people like think outside of the box. People got really creative during this response. So, um, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of innovation, which is always great to see. Let's, you yeah. know, that's good to hear that we saw some innovation and it's just crazy yeah. to think that, you know, you probably go through all these trainings and you go through these, um, exercises and, you know, you said that there was going to be a five year plan to kind of run through the, you know, the exercise and make sure everything was well. And it's just crazy that, you know, that it has to actually be activated. So, Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy to think about now. I'm sure that there was, you know, nationally there was issues with drug supply, um, especially with some of the, um, political aspects around something like hydroxychloroquine or in some of these other mm-hmm. medications. Um, what, uh, what can you talk through or talk about in terms of issues with drug supply in the state or yeah. and how you guys might've responded to that? Yeah. Um, I got a good story for that. So we, uh, I started 
getting some concerns about the medication that was used on ventilated patients for COVID because a, a lot of the COVID-19 patients that were on ventilators were using high-dose sedatives, like high doses. Um, I, got, I got this email from a hospital that was sent to me. I don't even remember how it got to me, that um, it was hit really bad in the beginning. Um, they had had a person from the Atlanta area go down for a funeral and this is in the beginning, this was in March, um, the person went into a house for the funeral, was around probably around, it was a lot of people, and their ER had 20 COVID positive patients within 24 hours. And it was a rural hospital. The closest hospital to them was over an hour away. And they were running out of sedatives for their vent patients. So if you think about a person who's on a ventilator, um, you know, they have a tube down so they can breathe, right? So in order to do that, they have to give them paralyzing agents to, to do that. So what happens if you're on a ventilator and you're paralyzed and you're not sedated, Richard? <laughs> Scary, right? Yeah. You're, you're paralyzed and you can't do anything about it. So um, that particular hospital had one of these um, caches in it that I used for the chemical terrorism program. And there, um, there's medavlam in there. It's a sedative. So I had to call the federal side of my program to ask if I could open up that container to use it. Um, I was initially told no. <laughs> I asked why. Um, Cause it's, it's to treat someone for a response, right? Like it's a good way to justify your program. Um, and I finally um, got through to somebody and they, they allow me to open up that cash for them to use. The problem is, is that they had 50 patients on ventilators and that cash only had 50 vials in it. So I had to pull drugs from another hospital to take to that hospital. Um, I used a game warden to fly it. Because game, game wardens are police, you know, they're kind of like police officers, right? So they have drug training. So the, the game warden went to the hospital, the other hospital that was on the other side of the state, pulled some medication out of that little cache and flew it across in a helicopter for me to, to that hospital. Um, it was, it's amazing some of the things we've done during this response. Um, but it was kind of like putting a, a Band-Aid on the problem because there's there's still they basically were putting in orders for fentanyl, midazolam, um, Presidex, and uh, ketamine. They were using ketamine to sedate patients, which is like a fourth line, because they ran out of fentanyl, they ran out of midazolam, and they ran out of Presidex. So, um, and they couldn't use propofol in their patients because they had high triglycerides. Mm. So, yeah, I know, right? So I we had to get our board of pharmacy our drug and narcotic agency, the DEA and the FDA all on a chain email regarding this. And we, and you, you may have seen some of the regulations that were kind of lifted in regards to compounding pharmacies because of this, but we were able to get a compounding pharmacy that usually does not compound for um, hospitals. It's just individual, individual, not mass compounding. They allowed us to use that independent pharmacy to compound for that hospital, um, so which was which was great. So that hospital was able to get medication that they were not able to get through their wholesale supplier through that compounding pharmacy. That's so, interesting. yeah, I know, right? 
Um, and the compounding pharmacy was near the warehouse where I worked and the helicopter, you got to get the helicopter. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) It was so so funny because the game warning came in. I love him. The dad came in and was like, do we need a helicopter in? And this compounding pharmacist was like, what? (laughs) It's a good thing. I don't work there. I would be unnecessarily using that helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) I would overblow everything. I know. That's why I told everybody. I was like, no, it's fine. Like they have enough for three days. It's okay. But um, I got a trooper to send it down. So this trooper got an SUV, took it to the independent pharmacy, loaded up all this compound fentanyl for them and drove it. Well, I got an email from that pharmacist and says, hey, we have a van ready for shipment. It's going to leave here at noon, just so you know. This is so funny. This is awful. The first thing I thought of was that county was a hot zone at the time. And we had a protocol going into that county for the people leaving the warehouse. You did not stop to get gas. You stayed in your vehicle. If you got out, we gave you an extra extra change of PPE. Like you basically took off what you were wearing because mm. we couldn't get exposed at the warehouse to anything for someone going in there. So the first thing I thought of was, oh, my God, they're their technician or whomever is going to go into this county to deliver this medication is going to go into this hospital that is, has COVID positive patients. You know, they had like four or five ICUs open. The first thing I thought of was, Oh my gosh, if this person gets COVID and brings it back to the compounding pharmacy and it shuts down, I am screwed. Yeah. The snowball (laughs) effect is so scary. Yeah. The second thing I thought of was, Oh my gosh, that is a like street value, a high value of fentanyl. Yeah. (laughs) But the um, the troopers were trained about like with these protocols going into this county. So, um, yeah, it was great. Troopers went and um, they del- they ended up delivering medication to other hospitals as well that could not get these medications. We I believe we had four or five hospitals in our state using this compounding pharmacy. So um, we had to do a lot of creative um, problem solving, which I have, I have learned a lot during this response. Learned a lot about PPE that I did not know as well. So yeah, I think um, we all did around the PPE <laughs> front. Well, the only thing I yeah. did see about uh, compound, compounding that was, I know was significantly, um, uh, or I think was adapted significantly was like creating and compounding hand sanitizer. And I think there were some things that were lifted around that as well. But um, I don't know if you have any insight or what that might have been like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had a um, we had a brewery that got a contract for the state to make hand sanitizer and it wasn't very good hand sanitizer. So I I sent them um, some hydrogen peroxide that were able to buy with the state contract for them to add to their recipe because they couldn't get hydrogen peroxide. So the hand sanitizer was like really, really, it just didn't feel good when you used it. Mm-hmm. So when we got them some hydrogen peroxide, it was a lot better. So we, um, I mean, they were making massive and massive amounts of gallons of hand sanitizer. So, that's, that's um, and I know some, yeah, I know some compounding pharmacies were compounding it as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think, you know, what went on short supply that a lot of people needed and how some non-conventional places stepped up to kind of prepare that. So was there any other, yeah, yeah, I was was about to ask, you know, if there was any kind of private that you could think about, like other stories of private enterprises or businesses or whether it's like big businesses or small businesses, any other stories of how some of them might've stepped up and stepped in to help with the response? Yeah, we've had a lot of medical companies that have stepped up to uh, supply PPE. Um, Some, some vendors are not as good as other vendors uh, per se. So, it was great having good relationship with those PPE vendors that had, um, that verified their product integrity. 
we had some gowns that were ordered that didn't have sleeves. <laughs> they didn't have like arms. Uh, wow. So they were just like gar- garbage bags. Uh, we, um, we had some gowns that we ordered and uh, we, we made our best effort to test as much as possible before it was sent out. But I remember getting this one gown and I looked at it and I was just like, I don't, it was going to be sent to a health department for them to do COVID testing. And I got a spray bottle full of water and I just put my hand through it and sprayed it. And I pulled my hand out. It was just covered in water. And I just looked Mm. at it and I was like, this is not going to work. Like what if someone sneezes on you or coughs on you when you're doing a test? Like I I was going to ask how the testing went, you know, like what kind of high tech testing did you guys do to figure this out? (laughs) And then it was like, yeah, spray bottle. (laughs) But everybody, like even our, um, we have a guy that works for for us. That's his, his title is the weapons of mass destruction coordinator. That's his actual title. And he, he is, um, he is a trained seaburn. So that's chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and that, that is his training. So he does radiation training and stuff throughout the state. And I would go check stuff. He was in, he was our warehouse manager because he has experience with that. But if I ever had a question regarding testing something, or if I needed something clarified, or if I just was like, I don't know what this is. Can you like just in time train me on what this is? Um, I, I was, when we were trying to figure out like the levels of the gowns and just the barrier, I I told him, I was like, I just, some of these gowns aren't that great. They're not, you know, the water is not, you know, being repelled from them. And he's like, yeah, well, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, can I just get like a spray bottle and just spray water? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that, that, that would work. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Sounds like great. Um, But it's great when you have like a vendor coming in, they're like, no, 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 this is great. And you just hold up like your hand and show like, Hey, this, this is what penetrated your gown. And you can see like the water beads on it. Cause I'm a very visual person and I like physical examples like that. So when people actually see it, they get it. And I'm like, what if someone sneezes? On, would you want to wear this and someone sneeze on you? And they're like, no, and I'm like, okay, like this is not going to work. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Um, there's a lot of confusion out about gloves because nitrile and latex are rated for viruses, but vinyl gloves are not rated for viruses. Vinyl gloves are only rated for chemicals. Um, well, they could be rated for more than chemicals, but uh, they, they, vinyl gloves are not rated for viruses. I cannot say that enough. So I've, I have seen vendors try to offload product that aren't aware of that. And they wonder why they can get vinyl gloves, but they can't get nitrile gloves. That's why. Mm. Um, so well, that that's is a, a fun little, fact. <laughs> yeah. That is a pearl for you to have, especially when you're doing immunizations in your pharmacy that you need to be wearing nitrile or latex gloves. Do not, do not wear vinyl gloves. I mean, Compounding pharmacy, that would be great, you know, to have when you're dealing with chemicals and in, in, in that type of field uh, where you don't have to worry about viruses. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, little things I've learned along the way. That is really interesting. Well, I have to ask because who knows if there's more. What other nuggets do you think that, you know, we didn't really think about previously that we had to deal with now that you can kind of throw out there? Counterfeit N95s. There are so many people making counterfeit N95s out there. Uh, we, they're very good counterfeit in 95s too. I've caught several that have, um, come through before they've gone out. Thank goodness. And, uh, we're not used. Uh, it's just verifying your vendors, verifying product integrity. And if something doesn't, just doesn't feel right, just try to figure it out. And, and the concern I have with these counterfeit in 95s is like, I don't, we don't know what is in them. I mean, they could have fiberglass for all we know in them. 
so and I um through a a connection with the Taiwanese consulate that we have, I was inadvertently introduced to Dr. Peter Tsai, who is the inventor of the N95 fabric. So I was having email conversations with this brilliant man who came out of retirement to assist in the COVID response about the N95 fabric he created. Like I was just like, I know every time I emailed and he is so amazing and so nice and so helpful. And I just was I felt like so unintelligent. (laughs) It sounds like he'll do that to anybody really. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, such an amazing person. Just, I, he helped me like understand things better and understand the purpose. It's, I I could not say, Oh, he, that man is amazing, man. He is, he is one of my heroes. Um, but yeah, it just, the amazing things I have learned that I can take in, teach pharmacists about and just take with me for the rest of my life has been, has been amazing. Uh, even, and like, and then, um, the point of care testing, I, I became certified to be, uh, to administer tests. I haven't, um, done it in the public health setting, but, um, just learning about the different COVID tests and, uh, the sensitivity and the specificity, um, the COVID tests are coming through the warehouse as well that we're getting from the federal side that we're mm. sending out. So, yeah, I'm trying so, to think of any other little pearls I can pass on to pharmacists, but um, I the glove one is very important in my opinion. Yeah, that one sounds like it's it's um, crucial. I think for a lot of people to be yeah. aware of. So I'm glad we we got that in. Is there okay. so the protocols that were in place for you know emergency preparedness? Mm-hmm. Do you feel that there was an a lot like there was adequate enough there for to prepare you for something like this, and it was just about executing? Or do you feel like this pandemic actually prompted a lot of updating and things that needed to be added to the protocol? Uh, both. We had some good processes in place that we had tested through preparing for um, an anthrax attack or, you know, pan, uh, pandemic flu. So we had some processes in place. Um, however, um, there have been some lessons learned through the COVID response um, that have been invaluable, but we would have not been able to respond um, to, you know, especially in our state, we would have not been able to respond as well if we had not exercised those plants that we had previously. So I would say gotcha. uh, yes and yes. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> All right. Um, Anything else before we jump into, I, I want to talk about like getting prepared for the um, potential vaccine um, distribution oh, yeah. and any other stories um, from the response so far uh, or something yeah, that we might not I, have covered? I, I, I got to, I, I learned how a ventilator worked. Never was taught that in pharmacy school. We had to uh, pull ventilators from teaching schools and have them service to be deployed in a clinical setting. So that, that was interesting. Uh, yeah. So there's been so many things we've done and I just, I'm probably forgetting so much stuff, but, um, I I have been very proud as a pharmacist to take skills that I have just learned like in pharmacy school and just as being a pharmacist and implemented in this response. So, um, and pharmacists are, in my opinion, have been very crucial in the COVID response, especially with patients and making sure they have access to their medication. And they're going to be very important when COVID-19 vaccine rolls out. Yeah, I think there's an underrated skill that pharmacists have. uh, And I'm sure this is 
true for other healthcare professionals as well, but I think especially pharmacists, because we're always, especially through school, like the nature of our training has been, here's a ton of information that you need to like learn quickly, understand, Mm -hmm. and then be able to like uh, kind of explain it or apply it or do something like that. And I feel kind of to your story about, oh, like we had to learn how to service a ventilator. I feel like a pharmacist is in a great position to say, all right, like what's all like, let me see all the information and start like immediately like taking some action on that. So I think that's an underrated skill that pharmacists have. Oh, absolutely. And one of the skills I have found for myself that is very crucial to pharmacists is taking something super complicated and explaining it on a sixth grade level. Because if you think about it in the pharmacy, when you're explaining how a medication works to a patient that may not have um, a higher education level, we have to do that a lot. So we have to take something that's super complicated, goes through all these pathways, has these metabolites, gets excreted, and then have to explain it in a, in a way to a patient in like two or three sentences. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a great skill to have, especially when you're dealing with something complicated. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So the, there's been the day recording this, I think there was just the Pfizer and Moderna uh, news about the effectiveness and um, Mm -hmm. some reporting about data and how, you know, it looks promising. What is the, how is the state preparing for vaccine distribution? What are your thoughts around kind of what's going on and and kind of what the next steps are going to look like for when a vaccine does get approved? Yeah, sure. So I am, I am on the vaccine planning team with the office of immunization in our state. And because we have a lot of pharmacies that are enrolling to be providers. So I've, and this is new to them. So I've been advising and talking to pharmacists because I speak pharmacy and also providing clinical support to them because, again, I can take a lot of information, condense it down, and just send the team updates um, regarding vaccine and also explain mRNA <laughs> to on a sixth grader level and show videos. So um, we're, we are getting prepared and we have been putting plans in place. We have a lot of identified areas that are ordering ultra cold storage, which is uh, another story and preparing for Pfizer. A lot of people are, and I had a student give a presentation on this. Uh, There was so much focus on Pfizer that I felt like Moderna was, was left out of of the conversation. And now it's Moderna, Moderna, because they've just released the information. Um, There's going to be some, um, lessons learned from this as well, especially since Pfizer is stored at ultra cold temperatures. So, yeah, it's a negative 70 degrees Celsius, and the average temperature of the North Pole is negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So, <laughs> so that yeah. sounds like it's going to be one of the bigger challenges. I, I think I, yeah. I want to say the la- one of our last episodes, the pharmacy was buying um, uh, some materials to be able to store stuff. I can't remember if he was specifically looking to store it at that cold, but um, yeah. that sounds like it's going to be one of the bigger challenges, especially for that as, particular vaccine. As- Oh, absolutely. Like we got our freezer in. So we ordered a freezer, an ultra cold freezer at the warehouse as a backup storage site. So if, um, if a public health department couldn't, didn't have the capacity to store it, we could store it on their behalf. And then Mm. we could pack it out in coolers if they, cause you can keep it at refrigerated temperature for five days. So we're, we were just having it as a backup site, but it came in a couple of days ago and, um, wish somebody would have told this, but it's, it's German and it requires a German adapter. So we couldn't hook it up <laughs> until we had all the stuff we needed to convert it. Oh no, that's <laughs> so, terrible. 
if anybody's listening to me and you're buying ultra cold storage, please check the conversion on it. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, we, uh, but, um, yeah, again, lessons learned. So, um, yeah, preparing for ultra cold, um, again, yet yeah, like your, your person was talking about the special requirements. So there's an adapter, there's special reporting as well. So in order to receive vaccine from the CDC, you have to have a digital da- data logger. And that way, if, cause the first thing's going to happen if someone has an adverse event is that you, you have to show a cold chain. You have to show product integrity. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to show you're able, able to maintain that ultra cold temperature, um, you know, throughout the, the while you've had it for that, that period of time. So you have to have ultra cold, um, data loggers to keep track of it. So, um, yep. Ultra cold, uh, temperature verification, backup paper copy, like we do in the pharmacy, you know, you write the temperature in the morning and the evening, just in case the power goes out, you have to have that as well. Um, making sure you have the capacity and the storage space for the, for those freezers. We ordered one that's a 27.5 cubic feet. So it's, it's quite large. And, um, I had to do some quick math based on the Pfizer, um, dimensions to see how much vaccine we potentially could hold. So I calculated we should be able to hold around 43,000 miles in that freezer based on the Pfizer dimension. So I'm, I'm, well, it'll be fun to see how right I was. Would it be extremely difficult for like a private company company to, or an entity to create this sort of backup, you know, storage place? It's funny because the, 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 the kind of, analogy I'm thinking of is, you know, Amazon and like AWS and how, you know, they have all these servers in a central place and obviously people pull from the cloud. And I just feel like there's a, there's an interesting comparison of like having, you know, a central location where vaccine is stored for specific um, customers or specific healthcare providers and facilities. And then they can just kind of come and pull from their batch when they need to. I'm sure, I'm sure some States have identified locations like that. Um, However, you have to remember as well that those entities have to be um, a healthcare provider in order to hold that product. Yeah. It can't just be so. You you have to verify that you're able to have a healthcare provider there and, and why you're serving as the backup. But yeah, absolutely, it potentially could. You know, if I'm trying to think of scenario, if like you're you're perhaps are a private lab that runs samples and you have ultra cold storage. Uh, most places that have ultra cold storage are using their ultra cold storage. But if you're not, you potentially could be a backup site for a health department. Yeah. It just sounds like an interesting potential business because I yeah. feel like we're, we're not, you know, I don't think we've ever been in a situation where we have to administer this many vaccines. And especially if like, what if it, yeah, for whatever it. reason, that's the only vaccine that we can give, you know, who knows what might happen. I don't know, but you know, that's the worst case scenario yeah. where, we have to do that for, um, you know, that something happens with the Moderna vaccine or something, but, um, I'm, that- I'm pretty confident. I mean, I'm pretty confident in Moderna that they, they are applying for emergency. Well, long story short, they're going to sit their submit their paperwork into the FDA. So they'll announce when they're submitting in their paperwork, uh, that will require FDA review, which we're estimating is around two weeks. And then, what will happen either is they'll issue an emergency use authorization or make it a licensed vaccine. They're going to do an emergency use authorization because it'll expedite the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the two weeks. However, the advisory committee on immunization practices has to meet and they have to go over it. And then they have to send their recommendations to the CDC to approve the candidates. 
So even when we get an emergency use authorization, we're not going to be able to administer it until we have ACIP recommendations. Interesting. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you think the priority of distribution is going to work? Um, whether that be, at, I don't I, I don't know how you know how far up it starts to have the requirements, or if it goes to the individual um, uh, agency yeah. that's providing the the vaccine, but. Is it going to be where it's, you know, elderly first? Uh, is it going to be multiple groups first? Um, what, what's what been the conversations look like in the public health world in terms of how we're going to prioritize who gets what when? Yeah. So you can go on the CDC's website and they have the CDC COVID-19 interim playbook. You could type that in Google. It'll more than likely be the first thing that pops up. Uh, they have the plan kind of laid out. It's a really long document. It's 60 pages. It's nice reading material before you go to bed at night, but it talks about the whole tiers. So we're going to, and, and phases. So we're going to have phase one, which is where, you know, obviously demand is going to be greater than supply in phase one. Then we have phase two where there's a little bit more vaccine that's available. And then we have phase three where there's adequate supply. So in, in phase one, we're going to be focusing on essential workers and healthcare workers. So in our state, we have 1A and 1B. So 1A is our healthcare workers, like like clinicians in that type of setting where there's a lot of uh, potential risk for exposure, you know, doctors, nurses, hospitals. Then we have public and private laboratory workers because they, the people who are doing the COVID testing are exposed to COVID, right? They're mm-hmm. replicating virus on a daily basis. So they need to, they're at high risk. So they need to get immunized. And in our state, we have our first responders in 1A. So EMS, um, yeah, first responders. That makes sense. And then, and this is our state, so it's going to vary state by state, but it's based off the CDC guidance. Then we have 1B, which is our um, non-healthcare firefighters, because some firefighters are EMS. So non-medical firefighters, police, so our, our public safety people, and uh, um, people in that type of hospital setting that... Um, are, are essential. So um, cafeteria, like workers, la- la- laundry, administration, mm-hmm. things like that. And then phase B is where we roll out to the essential workers. And that's where pharmacy is going to be very important in phase two. So that's like teachers and retail workers. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Now they are putting in tier one, um, high-risk people, so individuals over 65 with uh, two or more comorbidities. So there is potential for patients in phase one. However, it, in my opinion, phase one is focusing more on your um, healthcare workers and people at high risk for contracting in that, health, in that healthcare field. And there are going to be some patients involved because of that 65 plus with two comorbidities. Now, how is it going to work? So I, I understand the the tiers and what's recommended by the CDC, and, and thanks for breaking down kind of what goes on in your state. But what, how, how does this ultimately get decided? Does it still actually only um, get decided by the people that are administering the vaccines? So, like, let's say it's a health system or a pharmacy. Let's say, are they? What if they decide no? Actually, we want to do teachers in this particular section. How does that ultimately work in terms of who gets to decide yeah, so, that? Yeah. Yeah, so so let, let me kind of explain the process a little bit. So have you seen on the news where um, entities have enrolled to be providers with the CDC, like Walmart, 
um, Publix, um, things like that. Have you have you seen that? I, I have not seen the specifics of that. No. Okay. Well, you you can go on and see a news release about these pharmacy partners that have enrolled to be providers um, with the CDC. Those are phase two providers. They will be getting COVID nineteen vaccine federally. So they'll they'll be getting it federally through the CDC. We like the way it's going to work on a state level is that the public health immunization programs are going to be allocating it within the state. So when you are enrolled to be a provider in your state, you are going to be receive allocations through your public health. And in our state, it's initially going to be with our hospitals. So Office of our Office of Immunizations is identifying locations based on the population that they serve, the number of population, and categorizing them for phase one, phase two, phase three. And it's and it's based on that tier structure. Once they assign those tier structures, that's when the allocation process occurs based on the recommendations from immunization. Uh, th- does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. The way really- I, okay. I, what okay. I did see, I actually saw a tweet recently about, because uh, I'm following, you know, obviously news for Florida. I, I live in Miami. Uh, and yeah. I just saw that they announced for Florida, like the first, I think it was like the first five hospitals that were going to be um, being provided the vaccine, yeah. which is crazy because I so, think a couple of them are in South South Florida. Yeah. So that's, that's a good point to bring up. So this is a funny story. So the CDC asked each state to identify one to five locations for, quote, Pre-positioning. So this is this is in the beginning. So a few weeks ago, the CDC had conversations about, hey, we've had discussions with Pfizer about shipping products to identified locations while the FDA is reviewing the data. Then when the emergency use authorization comes through and the ACIP makes their recommendations, the product will already be on the on in those locations. That got I I don't know the legalities involved with that, but that that, that is <laughs> sounds that is sketchy. Not <laughs> I don't know the legal term for this, but it sounds sketchy. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Well, I remember being in the call um, and my team looking at me, like wondering about it, and I was, and I said the same thing about you. I'm gonna be like, I'm just a pharmacist, but that doesn't sound right. Yeah, and I had funny. I had a mental image of like some like rogue clinician in a health, in a hospital saying like, we have this vaccine, we're giving it. Mm-hmm. And someone saying, Oh wait, it had, wait, no, like the FDA is reviewing the data. And then someone saying, I don't care. We give stuff off label all the time. And someone saying it's not off label because there's no label to go off of. Cause that's, <laughs> that's it's scary to think, you know, if there's like a heist that happens, you know, yeah. like a, like a vaccine heist, that's a movie. Yeah. Somebody, if, if yeah. I hope someone makes this movie. Yeah, funny story. We're going to um, get our troopers. You know, I was talking about the troopers transporting medication. We're going to get our troopers back for vaccine transport. That's mm-hmm. part of our security plan. We would have that for like an anthrax, you know, mm-hmm. plan. So they were involved with our um, with that medication. They also were involved in remdesivir allocations. Um, I worked with them because we had remdesivir shipped to the mm-hmm. warehouse, um, the donated inventory, and I coordinated with them to deliver it to hospitals uh, because of the whole security issue. Um, I had to drive some remdesivir, well, not drive, but I sat in the van. I had to drive a refrigerator van to a hospital to deliver remdesivirs too. It's a funny story. Anyway, I digress. So um, I am, I, I don't, 
know what happened, but I'm pretty sure that somebody told someone that they could not pre-position vaccines. But that's why your five areas have been identified because we had to do that in Georgia as well. So each state had to identify one out of five, oh, sorry, one to five uh, pre-positioning areas. So it's my thought that those five locations would initially get vaccine first based on those predetermination plans. Mm-hmm. And then it'll, and then it'll spread out by there because we're not, we're not going to have enough initially to do, to, to vaccinate everybody that's yeah. in that one, a structure. We're not going to, I mean, you, Richard, you're in Florida. Like what, what is the population of Florida? Yeah. I, I don't know the exact population. I know in Miami, there's just in Miami alone, there's millions of people to deal with. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah. So like in Georgia, there's 10 million people. And I, I was going through this process with my students. I was like, how many people do you think in our state are um, clinicians? Like work in a hospital. And one of my students goes a lot. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I said, very good answer. A lot. I was like, we're not getting, they finally got it. They're like, we're not going to have enough to vaccinate everybody. And then two, you have to think about this. Both candidates required two doses. So hmm. they're, they're, so what's going to happen is there's going to be a certain amount that is going to be allocated initially. So I've heard discussions about there being about 40 million doses in the beginning. This has to be allocated among 64 jurisdictions in, in the U.S. because that's what we have for the CDC. We have jurisdictions. For example, Los Angeles is its own jurisdiction mm-hmm. because of the population. We also have... Um, outlying areas that are are U.S. uh, territories like um, Guam. Guam would be a jurisdiction. So we have 64 jurisdictions that we have to allocate to. Well, shout shout out to Google, but sorry to interrupt. Uh, The population of Florida is about 20 million. It might be a little higher than that. So it's crazy. It's crazy perspective to think you said that, you know, 40 million doses will be available, which means that's just enough to (laughs) To vaccinate Florida. <laughs> That's no, 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 oh, no, we're going to break this down, Richard. Okay. Let's so there, there's, okay. So there's 64 jurisdictions. I should have said, I thought y'all were double the population of Georgia and I should have said that. I apologize, but that's, we always talk about Florida because you know, y'all are our neighbors. So, <laughs> okay. All right. So we have 40 million doses, right? Um, they're going to hold back a reserve because in case there's a lot issue with some of those, right? Ah, so, smart. so I, I, I estimated 10 to 15%. So let's just for easy math do 10. So you have 40 million, um, you have to hold back 4 million. So that's 36, right? Mm-hmm. So then you have to divide that by two because you have to have enough to send out for the first dose and you have to have enough to send out for, for the second dose. It's crazy. Right? Yeah. So that's so that's 18 million, right? For the first initial allocation? Mm-hmm. All right. Then you have to divide that by 64 jurisdictions. Let the record show that in case your math is off, I'm the worst person to check math. So, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I, I, it sounds uh, it sounds right. It sounds legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? So, I'm going to pull up my calc- I should have pulled up my calculator while you were talking. <laughs> no, I think about it sounds good. So, yeah, I think 18 you, makes it sounds sense. good. Yeah. All right. So, um, so if you divide it by 64 jurisdictions, that's I'm rounding down, but it's about 280,000 doses. So yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. 2,000, uh, 280,000 um, people that would get their full dose, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. God, man. Yeah, it's gonna be tough, and that's just for the first phase. Luckily, you know, luckily they'll 
So how, I mean, is there, so it sounds like there's going to be a while before the average independent pharmacy then can potentially have the vaccine available. Oh, absolutely. So um, AstraZeneca's product is more than likely going to have emergency use authorization. I'm thinking around April or May. So there'll be three products around that time. I was estimating around April or May when it actually can get down to like a retail setting. Man, yeah, that's, it's crazy because, you know, I speak to a lot of different leaders and people in pharmacy and healthcare. And a lot of times we're trying to think about, you know, what does 2021 look like? And things kind of getting back to, obviously things will never get back to normal, but getting back to some mm-hmm. form of functionality where it's, it's much different than what the last nine months have been. And it's just mm-hmm. crazy to think, you know, we're, we're excited about the vaccine news, but then really thinking through the logistics of getting, um, you know, the vaccines out to, to the mass population. And then, and then you have to think about there's still going to be a certain percentage of people that are not going to want to get vaccinated for whatever reason. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, absolutely. Are, are there like marketing campaigns? I'm, I'm sure there's marketing campaigns. Oh, but yeah. what, what can you talk oh. through and your concerns about, you know, that side of the population that will, are going to decide, consciously decide not to get vaccinated? Yeah, we um, we have a communications department within our public health. Both, most, I would assume all do. But um, we've had discussions, um, which is really funny, about having reminders. Uh, you know, um, when you're, like, driving down the road and you have those little signs about buckle up yep. that your Department of Transportation put up? We've talked about perhaps having discussions. We haven't finalized anything yet, but if someone brought this idea about putting reminders up about your second dose. Mm. on those messages and getting vaccinated and things like that. Um, we're and it is going to be dire that communication departments put out information regarding it. Cause that, that to me is going to be the biggest hurdle to overcome. Um, like, Oh, this vaccine is going to make me have COVID or this vaccine is like, you know, they're going to put a microchip in it. Like yeah. just over, overcoming those, um, those hurdles. <laughs> it's crazy to think about how almost everything kind of gets tied back to like marketing, you know, like mm-hmm. I think it's actually really interesting to think about. And I think it's, it's something important. I think I'd want to drive as well to, especially people in, in healthcare and in, and in pharmacy specifically about how, yes, you know, the care that we provide is important, but we need to get mm-hmm. better at marketing, not only our services, Absolutely. but marketing, like messaging around being healthier, because I think that's what yeah. really influences the behavior and it's funny because oh, that's that's what it's going to take nationally to get people to get vaccinated. Oh, absolutely. And like, I mean, for the next like four months, us as pharmacists with people coming in to get their, their prescriptions and just talking to us, we, we're, we need to start educating people about the importance of getting a COVID-19 vaccine and educating yourself on the current data, which is very good, by the way, mm. and explaining the importance of it. And um, I'm calling it the new normal. Like, we're not going to get back to the nor- new normal unless we can increase our vaccination rates. And it, it's going to be very important that people get vaccinated if we need, to, if we can go back to what I'm going to call the new normal. Yeah. <laughs> so, but as pharmacists, we need to start educating people now and explaining that when it becomes available and you do have access to it, why it's so important for you to get it. Well, this was a an insanely insightful conversation because there's a lot that I did not know that you um, educated me on in terms, especially during how vaccines going to be distributed and all the kind mm-hmm. of hurdles to overcome. So I uh, really do appreciate it. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with um, around the response or or just any um, any any yeah. words in general? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, 
just let people know the federal, the government sponsored federal vaccines are going to be available at no cost. They've been, they've been purchased with federal funds. Uh, once they're available in a pharmacy setting, depending on your state, you, you will be able to charge an administration fee. The vaccines are going to be sent with ancillary supplies. They'll be sent separately. So I'm sure there's going to be some hurdles to jump with that. Um, the ancillary supplies will not include gloves, sharps containers or band-aids. So if you're interested in being a COVID-19 vaccine provider, I would encourage you to make sure you have a sharps container available and make sure that you have gloves, especially gloves that are not vinyl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and the digital data loggers. Make sure you have a digital data logger because you'll have to send that information in for reporting if it's requested. Great. So what, yeah. uh, what ways can people connect back with you uh, if they do want to uh, follow up after the episode? Yeah, um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn and that's going to be the best way to reach out to me. Honestly, I'm, I don't really do Facebook or anything like that. Great. Well, Tracy, this was definitely a delight. We are going to probably, I mean, we haven't talked about this previously, but I'm committing you to it now. Anyway, we're probably going to have to have a part three kind of when the yeah. vaccine starts uh, being distributed. <laughs> I'd love to kind of jump in and see how things are going and kind of look back yeah. at the plan we talked about today uh, yeah, and then see yeah. what that looked like. So, you know, hopefully sometime in 2021, we'll have another discussion. But uh, for now, thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you. What we need to do is I want, we're going to do this at our warehouse too. We need to identify our number and see how close we were for the first number, especially you for Florida. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Cool. Oh. Well, thanks again, Tracy. Hey. you all enjoyed that episode i'm going to include in the show notes the links that she had mentioned especially referring to the cdc guidance on uh prioritizing who's going to get the covid vaccine uh thank you so much for tuning in as always i really do appreciate it and hope you have a great rest of your day take care